I am Allison Cole, and even though I am a licensed psychologist, I am here to only provide general information about psychological and emotional issues, but my guest and I will not be rendering psychological or healthcare advice for any individual or for his or her particular situation. If you are seeking a diagnosis, treatment, or advice regarding medical or mental health issue, please request a referral for a psychologist, psychotherapist, or licensed professional. Good morning or afternoon, depending on where you are in the country. Welcome to episode one of What Does It Take to Heal? My name is Corey Griffiths. I'm a professional drug and alcohol interventionist, and I've had a lifelong interest in all forms of healing. I'm collaborating with Dr. Allison Cole, psychologist and owner of Create Outcomes, to do this podcast and uncover what it takes to heal. This series will focus on how to know when it's time to get help and what it takes to find the right therapist. This first episode today is basically an introduction to what we hope to achieve in the entirety of the podcast. So, good morning, Dr. Cole. How are you? Good morning, Corey. I'm doing good. Fantastic. Thank you for joining me. And good morning, Toby. Toby is our producer and creator of Tomes, that he will tell you about later. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Corey. How are you this morning? I'm well, thank you. Excellent. I'm interested in hearing more about Tomes later in the podcast. Absolutely. Well, I'll bring you uh, an explanation of what Tomes is and uh, a sound bath at the end. So listeners, please stay tuned for that because it's it's a beautiful experience. It is. It is. It helps me sleep, and I appreciate that. So first we would like to talk about why we are doing this podcast Before becoming an interventionist, I had a very long history of substance use as medicine, but it got me in a lot of trouble. So I ended up in jails, institutions, treatment centers, and the exact same thing would happen every time between maybe two and seven or eight months. And what would happen is I'd feel great being sober and then somewhere out of the blue, this discontentedness would hit me. This anxiety, this depression, which I didn't have the names for. And I didn't know what to do. My only solution was to self-medicate. So it was really hard for me to find any sort of healing. I had thoughts for a very long time that A, therapy was just two people talking to each other. You know, I hadn't experienced it. I only thought about it in my head. But the main point is when I did try it, the few times I did, I was A, forced, and B, I thought that I was the one doing therapy wrong because I wasn't getting results. So, Over the last year, you have heard this story and its progression 
and the listeners will will hear that in future episodes progress as it ties in with the points that you make. But I first just want to welcome you and, and thank you so much for joining me and doing this project together and uh, utilizing tomes. But good morning again, Allie. Uh, would you, would you uh, tell our listeners why you are passionate about this podcast and this type of healing? Sure, Corey. And I first, before I get started explaining why I'm here today, um, I just want to say that your story, every time you tell me your story, it really touches my heart and it makes me really sad that it took you so long to find the help that you needed. And I don't think it should take people that long if we're doing what we need to be doing in our field. So I do really hope that our podcast is able to help listeners, our listeners, therapists, just have discussions that allow us to get the information out to people, to think about their healing in a way that allows them to get what they need sooner before they have to be in treatment and go through the cycles that you described over and over again. So for me personally, my journey to being a psychologist actually began at the age of nine. I knew I wanted to be a psychologist as soon as I found out what one was. And that was because my father was a pretty severe alcoholic and it was just me and my dad. He really relied on me as his companion in life. He didn't really have any other friends. So I was very close to him and once I found out that a psychologist could heal people, I decided that that's what I needed to be to heal my dad because that seemed like the only way I was going to be able to have a real father was if he got better. And I've really never turned around since then. I've never even questioned my career choice. I think what really did it, though, is when... I was 16 and my father died and my mom, who surprisingly had enough kind of emotional intuition to be able to say, you know, let's go to therapy. Your dad just died. I'm sure you have a lot to process. And even though I was a pretty oppositional adolescent, I needed, I needed help. I needed healing. I was in a lot of pain. And so I went to this guy I opened right up, even though it felt really weird to open up my grief to a stranger, and I cried, and I shared my suffering, and the first thing this guy tells me is about his own psychedelic trip when he was my age. <laughs> <laughs> did it have anything to do with your, did it tie into your trauma at all? No, I was kind of waiting to see if he would bring it back around or show me how it was connected. But he was just, I think, trying to be cool or think that was a way I would relate to him, even though I hadn't even done psychedelics at that point in my life. So it automatically turned me off to therapy. But more than anything, it kind of lit a fire in me because I knew that if I had experienced that 
so many kids my age and the high school I went to, there was a lot of suicide and a lot of kids who could have used therapies. So I knew that we needed to find a better way to help not only teenagers, but all people. And that is why I'm here today. I'm just really hoping that we can answer some of these, yeah, complex questions. I really appreciate that story and love stories that are just odd like that because I always want to know the other person's perspective. Around the same time, I'm sure, that you were 16 and actually opening up in therapy, I saw a court-mandated therapist. So my initial thoughts on a therapist were that they were cops who wanted to put me in jail if I failed the drug test or wasn't home on time. So they, I, I always kind of saw them as the enemy. Uh, but I went one, one afternoon after school eating a bunch of uh, psilocybin mushrooms and uh, went and talked to him. And I thought it would be fun. We had a good talk. And I remember at the end him saying, and he never said this, saying, uh, you know, I really see some spectacular changes in you. If you could be more like this on a regular <laughs> basis, I think that you would find happiness in life. Yeah, that's too bad. And, you know, I never told him I ate a quarter ounce of mushrooms before coming here, but <laughs> this was probably the same time. Uh, maybe he took my advice and then was your therapist a year later. Um, so I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, and I know your passion for healing in all aspects. And I know your expertise in psychology and healing in so many ways because we've had so many conversations about it. So part of this podcast is me just wanting to bring these conversations to light for both psychologists, therapists, healers of all types, and everyone who is suffering in, in one way or another. And hopefully you can give us a, a way to you know, evaluate our lives. But I did notice in your story that you didn't say you were an expert, but in my mind, you began being a psychotherapist at the age of nine. <laughs> so how can you not, that's much longer than 10,000 hours. How do you not call yourself an expert? Yeah, I think, you know, I, as, a, as a therapist, I've really learned that there are way, way too many questions about the human mind and the human psyche to feel comfortable, at least for myself, calling myself an expert. And there's really two specific reasons for that in particular. One of them being, and what I see as most important, is the reality that each relationship is so unique. I think in your own life, Corey, you've probably... Every, every person you're in relationship with, the relationship itself looks so different. And the same is true in therapy, that whoever that client is has his or her own unique background and biology and culture and race and upbringing. And 
with that, it brings out my own personal (laughs) bias and upbringing and culture and ways of thinking, because that's what happens when someone new sits in front of us is they bring out a part of ourselves that somehow is triggered or that we're reminded of. So that brings this relationship into a place where it's the kind of unknown. And if I was to go in there assuming that I was an expert, right, that I would miss a lot. And I I worry that I'd fail to examine even my own personal bias if I was to assume I kind of knew what I was doing there right away. And then the second reason I don't like calling myself an expert is just because of the research that we have to rely upon. Like, we've done a lot since Freud, you know, over 100 years. And in that time, even though we've definitely have a lot we can take from all the research that's been done, the problem with psychological research as compared to medical research is medical research can be a little more straightforward or we can examine things under a microscope and you know test them but for psychological research most of the time it's a random sample of people that are brought together and then you're supposed to do this specific treatment modality just the way that it's written and what happens is when you try to bring that in the room the person in front of you it's highly unlikely that they actually match the study sample that was done. And it's also highly unlikely that me as a human being is going to do that research exactly as it was done in the lab. And I also really appreciate you discussing research because I've worked at a lot of primarily drug and alcohol treatment centers or you know, just seeing therapists or places that deal with any sort of healing say, uh, we have evidence-based practices. And I always thought, you know, everything is evidence-based. Yeah, right? most people like, say that in the field. <laughs> there is, uh, you know, LSD is evidence-based. They did clinical studies on it, you know, but that doesn't make it legal or proper or ethical or appropriate for a specific client at a specific time just because there is evidence that it worked on someone in the past. So that makes a lot of sense. So, Dr. Cole, if all institutions say they are evidence-based, what does all this research and evidence do in actually helping individuals heal in real-world therapeutic relationships? Well, I think that evidence base can be really misleading. And you're right. I don't know that all programs say that or all therapists say that they're evidence-based, but I see it all the time. I definitely see it in your world, in the addiction world all the time when treatment programs are kind of advertising what it is they do, they almost always say that they offer an evidence-based treatment. The problem that I have with that terminology is because for seekers of healing who don't know much about therapy, that feels really good to them to hear, wow, this is based on evidence. Well, really, when the definition was created over 10 years ago, it was based on a few things. It was based 
on the value and culture and background of the client, the expertise of the therapist, and then two or more studies that are a close match to the client in front of you, which as I described before, it's pretty hard to get a close match of a research article or something that is going to actually represent the human being in front of you. So when you bring together those those three pieces, right, you start to realize that there's no way you can even know that a treatment is evidence-based until you actually know the person who's seeking that treatment. Because you would, right. need, you would need to know who they are as a unique individual before you can say that anything you're doing is evidence-based. Even if a treatment program or a therapist was to say, like, this is evidence-based for people with major depressive disorder. Again, that still doesn't determine whether or not a person who, let's say, grew up in a really poor environment and had, you know, different a different culture than the people who were studied in the sample, all those are variables that actually could impact whether or not that they're going to be able to apply the treatment to that person. So I think that's a really important thing for our listeners to know when they're even just thinking about what is psychology and how do we know it helps and what research do we even rely upon to be sure of that. That does make it more interesting. Um, so in most practices, do they just use the term evidence-based because they have a practitioner of a type of therapy that is evidence-based? Or are there any places that specifically try and place their clients with someone who matches that criteria and is that kind of the first thing you do in in seeking a therapist for someone else well we'll get in in our next episode a little bit more i think about you know how we go into referring someone to therapy or someone seeking who's the right therapist but i will answer your question with saying that Yes, it's important to know the type of treatment that whether a therapist at the treatment program or the therapist themselves has been trained in. For instance, at our practice, Create Outcomes, you know, for couples therapy, we do something called emotionally focused therapy. It has a ton of evidence behind it. And even though it's a great model, there are times when it doesn't work with some couples. And so then at that point, we have to adapt to the unique culture and needs of the couple. And so I think the most important part is just that we, even though we might know that something has evidence behind it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a fit for the person. I really like that you use the word adaptation. I'm assuming that in every therapeutic relationship, there has to be, you know, a combination of boundaries and adaptation to the person's personal way of communicating and understanding in order for you to do your job, yeah? Absolutely. So this also reminded me of um, a story that I, I won't go too deep into. I would need to check with my lawyer and therapist first. Um, but four years ago or so, 
I went through a custody battle uh, for my daughter because I wanted her in my life. With the healing that I had at that point, I went to every single person that I knew or that we knew specifically. What I have to tell you is I saw a therapist for this recently because I was still so upset about it. And still this story continues in its own way. And I had a therapist that I saw twice. The very first session I was voicing these incredible concerns that I, as a semi-professional psych person, uh, you know, not trained, knew connected to my past and my powerlessness and the feeling that I, you know, had a child stolen from me and nobody took it serious. Nobody helped me. I didn't ask for help in ways or in the right way. I don't know. But that felt like a trauma in and of itself. So we're having a combination of these two things and the present situation, which is uh, just time with her. And the only thing that therapist said throughout the entire session was some variation of, well... Corey, at least you have a daughter. You sh you could be grateful for that. Yeah, you know? that's too bad. Like, um, at least you do get to see her, you know? Um, so how did it make you feel, Corey, when she said, be grateful? When you were there feeling paralyzed and desperate and trying to figure this out, and when her, you know, I'll, I'll jump in here to say that, telling someone to be grateful as a therapist, in my opinion, almost should never happen. I'm sure there's some scenario I'm not thinking of where it would be appropriate, but I, it's kind of upsetting that that happened to you. But how did it make you feel when she said to be grateful when you were experiencing so much fear and suffering? And I have no problem with gratitude. I'm incredibly grateful for my daughter. I'm incredibly grateful for the difficult situation that occurred because it turns me into a ham. But how it made me feel was incredibly confused. Yeah, that makes sense. Being told you should be grateful when you're there for help is it can be not only confusing, but it can also make someone feel like they're really doing something wrong in life that's not able to be helped because a lot of people know what they should be doing. You should be grateful. You should exercise. You should get a good night's sleep. You should, you know, be kind to people. We know what we should do. We're not going to therapists to be told what we should do. We're going there to figure out why we can't do what we know is best for us or what we know is in alignment with our values and who we are. So, yeah, I'm sorry you had such an incredibly unhelpful experience there. But I think that leads me into... The second reason why I had said I don't call myself an expert or the first reason, I can't remember, but around the relationship itself being so unique that, that, we, ha that we have to be constantly asking ourselves as therapists, what is it that's our bias and our life experience that's being brought up in the room by the client? 
we have to take a look at that because for instance, becoming a psychologist in order to save my father, right? As a nine-year-old that, that comes with a lot. And I can see myself in the room often when somebody feels really hopeless and doesn't feel like they have anyone in the world to confide into, to confide in. I find myself being that little girl again, being like, oh, I'm going to be big enough to do anything I can to help this person. And sometimes that isn't quite what the person needs. They don't They don't need me to make myself feel better or make myself feel safe by making sure that they get out of the situation and they get helped right away because it can get me off track from what they their particular unique healing path might actually be. If I have some need to rush the process or to make myself feel more comfortable or to make myself feel successful. And I think, like I said, one of the reasons I'm doing this is also for therapists and healers. It's a very lonely job at times because, you know, people think, yeah, we'll just compartmentalize our own issues or we're going to be able to leave them outside the door or be completely neutral. And it's, we're human beings. So it's almost impossible to compartmentalize in that way. And it's the only way that we kind of have around it is to just know that we have to assess our blind spots with each person who's in the room so that we know if it's our agenda, such as the therapist you're describing, like I need everyone to just be grateful and that's my idea of how everyone's gonna get better, right? Like that's not therapy and we can really lose track if it's about our own bias or our, our own triggers instead of really keeping an eye on that and being able to connect with the unique human being that's in front of us. It's almost like that. Uh, SNL skit with the therapist where, you know, couples would come in and, and have a pro or an individual would come in and have a problem. The therapist would just say, make up a problem for me real quick. Well, I think honestly on that skit, it was a woman who came in and said she had fears about being in dead in a box. Or Stop something. it. <laughs> really? It's like, you know, that does tie it in. Um, you know, you're telling someone who wants to be grateful, just be grateful, um, is basically telling them, like, don't have the feelings that you're having, just be happy about it and pay me for it. The story that I told and what you just spoke about ties into a bias that a therapist might have or that probably all therapists have in their own way. Uh, can you explain as a therapist what you do when you face your own bias? Sure, that's so important. Um, one, I have we have a pretty group of wonderful therapists at our practice. So being in a group of therapists where you can talk about your work, in addition to having a supervisor, I have one to two supervision sessions a week to oversee the work that I do to make sure there's not something I'm missing in my own unconscious bias. And also having my own therapist. Like there are times that clients are going to bring up things for me that I need to heal within myself that I thought may have been healed or that it's coming back up because of the person in front of me. And also 
you know, that's, that is probably one of the biggest reasons other than helping our listeners find healing more quickly and having it be a less confusing process. I just feel so connected to therapists who are feeling alone in their work as I have many times and didn't know that I needed a therapist and a supervisor and a community and it can be pretty lonely. And so I really hope that today we were able to let listeners know what they can expect from this, that we're really going to just have some conversations to help both seekers and healers come together and really look at the complexities of the healing relationship and see if that we can make it more successful for more people. So it's been great being here. Thank you, Dr. Cole, and thank you for all of our listeners. We appreciate the time you took to listen because the passion that we have for healing that has created this podcast led us to this point. And we would like to help people find the help that they need sooner and believe enough at least to give it a shot. And understanding the complicated process of healing is something that we will touch upon in every episode while supporting therapists and healers so they feel less alone in their difficult jobs and positions. Because, in my opinion, a healer without their own more experienced guide can quickly become the client. That's just my opinion, but it's a good one, and I hope that it's yours. Dr. Cole and I will be inviting guests from the field of psychology, as well as other practitioners of alternative healing modalities. We would like to collaborate with these specialists and with people out there trying to find healing they need in order to explore all of the different questions that will guide us in being more effective and finding some relief to this painful life. In our next podcast, Dr. Cole and I will be discussing how a person knows when it is time to seek healing. Our sponsor, Tomes, T-A-U-M-M-H-O-M-S, a sound healing and meditation technology that can help with anxiety, depression, sleep, and much more. I particularly use it for sleep. Is brought to you by our friend and my brother, four-time Grammy Award-winning and record producer, Toby Wright. Good afternoon, Toby. Will you tell us about Tomes? Good afternoon, Corey. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Fantastic. Dr. Cole, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm glad you're here to share what these wonderful sound healing programs can do for our listeners. Well, thank you. I am... I am Toby Wright. I am the founder and creator of Tomes. And um, if you're not familiar with Tomes, it's a natural sleep and sound healing portal that's designed to help those who suffer from depression, anxiety, lack of a good night's sleep, and a host of other ailments. And um, 
it's a blending of three or more sound technologies that I use to create these beautiful tonalities that you will hear on this podcast, samples of, and our website. We have three levels of sleep therapy and 10 different lullabies for the kiddos. We also have 16 different tonalities which are aimed at different ailments. Are you an athlete? Do you just want better grades in school? Well, we have tonalities that can help both of you in our high-performance section. All this can be found at www.tomes.com. That's www.t-a-u-m-m-h-o-m-s.com. And today, uh, we'll have a sound bath and a sample of one of our high-performance tonality called Arise. Fantastic. Arise is also a tonality that I use to wake you up after your chosen length of sleep. I hope you enjoy this sound bath from Tomes. Toby, could I ask you a couple questions before we play this? Yes, of course. I didn't know that there was a part at the end that woke people up. It sounds like some sort of almost uh, hypnosis. How Can you explain in, in layman's terms how you bring someone up out of sleep? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I sure can. Um, the quick story is that when you're, um, you know, on your everyday life, your brain is about 12 to 15 hertz, which means cycles per second, right? You're awake, your eyes are open, you're understanding, you're listening, you're engaging with, you know, me right now, right? And so your brain is, is working at, at that, about approximately that level and sometimes a little higher. When you go to sleep, however, it calms down to maybe six, seven, three, two hertz, cycles per second again, um, and that helps you dream. It's the beta, theta, and alpha states, and that um, since your brain wants to sync to your environment at all times, um, this, is, this is how the theory goes that I can achieve this. And so after you've been in your REM sleep and deep into sleep uh, with, with the sleep tonalities, I put at the end this arise tonality, which has a higher frequency level um, than the sleep ones. The sleep are about, you know, depending on which level you choose, they're anywhere from four down to two hertz. Uh, arise is at about 14 to 16 hertz, somewhere in there. And so when you start hearing this tonality, your brain will all of a sudden start speeding up, your eyes will open, and you will be awake. And that's how it works. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. I'm, uh, I purchased a subscription, so I know about it, but I honestly only have listened to five or so because they work so well. So I'm, I'm very interested in hearing the, the new ones here. So Excellent. Which one is this? Uh, this will be a sound bath called Arise, which All right. is at the end of each, each and every one of the sleep cycles. All right. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, Corey. Have a good day. I hope you enjoy the sound bath from Tomes. Thank you to all of our listeners. We hope that this gave a little bit of insight into these topics. 
And in our next episode, Dr. Cole and I will be discussing how a person knows when it is time to seek healing. If you have any questions about any topics we covered or anything somehow related, you can reach us at info at createoutcomes.com. That's info at createoutcomes.com. So thank you so much, Dr. Cole, for joining me. I had a great morning with you. You're so welcome. It was my pleasure. And thank you for doing this with me, Corey. It's, it's really important work, and I'm happy to be doing it. Absolutely. I'm grateful to be a part of this and to get to ask these questions that I wish I could have known the answers to 20 years ago. So thank you, and I'll see you next week. If you have any questions in regard to our podcast today or therapy or anything that we had to say, please contact Info at createoutcomes.com. That's info at createoutcomes.com.